This is the Paul Kelly Podcast, episode 54. The Paul Kirtley Podcast. Wilderness bushcraft, survival skills, and outdoor life. Welcome, welcome to episode 54 of the Paul Kirtley Podcast, and it's good to be back. The production of these podcasts is now supported financially by the online course side of my wilderness skills training company, Frontier Bushcraft, and otherwise kept completely advertising free. If you'd like to check out my online course offerings, then please feel free to do so at onlinebushcraftcourses.com. My guest today is Dave Holder. I'd known of Dave for a good number of years before I first met him, which was at the 2019 Global Bushcraft Symposium in Alberta, Canada, which is where Dave is based. Dave is originally from the UK, but is now resident in Canada. He was in the British Army for 27 years until the early 2000s, and since then has worked as a civilian wilderness skills instructor and wilderness guide in Canada. As well as working alongside his wife Brenda at their Mohican Trails outdoor education business, Dave is also in demand as a television safety consultant. Indeed, Dave is the lead survival consultant on The Alone Show on the History Channel. We'll get into the more granular details of Dave's background and his work in the conversation you're about to hear. But before we jump into it, I should tell you, dear listener, that this conversation was recorded a little while ago. And for a number of reasons, it's only being released now. Rather than this being detrimental, though, there's actually even more context around the conversation that we have in the form of more Alone series now having been broadcast since we had this discussion and the world having moved on since COVID. In particular, in this conversation, we gain insights into long-term survival situations, psychological factors for success, skill sets required, equipment, nutrition and more. So, without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Dave Holder to the Paul Kirtley podcast. Well, I'm very pleased to have Dave Holder on the line here for this podcast. And this has been a little while coming, Dave. We've been talking about doing this for a while, so I'm glad we've managed to, to sit down at the, the same time. How are you doing today and where are you today? I'm I'm doing really well actually, although um, perhaps a little chilly. Well, I look outside and I see it's a little chilly. But yeah, I'm in Canada um, where I live. I, I live in uh, Canmore in, in the Canadian Rockies, and we've got a fair minus 18 with a little bit of a blustery wind blowing outside. Aha! Uh -huh. so, so it was. Um, I saw on Facebook that you were out uh, trying to do some snowshoeing and we were just talking before we started recording you said that you tried to do some ice fishing but it was actually raining so has the temperature dropped down again then has it today yeah it, it has um we, we get chinooks blowing in and um, a chinook is it's like a fern wind that one experiences in uh, europe and of course chinook brings in really warm winds and we can have temperature rise or fall of, of 30 degrees in one hour it's, it's quite incredible actually when that wind blows in Mm. And it blew in the other day and um, brought rain with it, which is quite unusual this time of year. And uh, yeah, upset my my ice fishing. <laughs> so, Dave, 
Um, I think most people that have an ear for accents will know that you're not originally from uh, Alberta or even Canada. Can you rewind a little bit? And I think for the benefit of the listeners, it'd be really interesting to know how you got there and what your background is. And, you know, we're going to dive into all of the, the, the survival and the bushcraft stuff uh, in, in due course. But it'd be really good just to get a little bit sense of your, your origin story, as it were. Yeah, um, absolutely. I was I was born in the UK in a in a fine town called Bognor Regis in Sussex, where my my grandmother owned owned um, a hotel there. Um, I, I joined the army and I, I was in the, the Royal Engineers for 21 years. And, and during my career, I was I was lucky enough to um, to get into the world of adventurous training. So I, I became a mountain leader. I, I did top roping. Um, I was a rock leader. And um, I spent a year while I was in the military at one of their adventurous training locations, teaching uh, kayaking, caving, climbing, um, navigation, hiking, and all of those great skills. And I was lucky enough to to be invited over to, to Canada and to teach some rock climbing here in the Canadian Rockies. And that's why I, where I ran into my, my wife, Brenda, and a year later, I, I gave up a promising military career. Um, I cancelled a brand new sports car that I'd ordered <laughs> and uh, resigned from the British Army. I married Brenda and went to college for, for a few months to, to finish off a diploma in, in safety management that I'd been taking while I was in the military. And then... Uh, immigrated to Canada. Uh, I was lucky enough that as soon as I arrived in Canada, I was hired as a civilian instructor at the British Army Adventurous Training Centre here in the Canadian Rockies. And I worked there for eight years and I was teaching um, caving, mountain biking, backpacking, canoeing, climbing, a little bit of survival, um, orienteering, and uh, yeah, great skills like that. Mm. And, and I also taught uh, dog sledding. Uh, I took um, military crews out for five-day dog sled expeditions uh, where we covered winter survival skills. Fantastic. That's how I got it. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. No, that's that's nice and nice and concise. What year did you emigrate to Canada, Dave? I immigrated to Canada uh, 1994. 94. <laughs> so you've been out there a long while now, like 25 yeah, years. Yeah, been out, been out here a long time, and it's a, it's it's been a great journey. Certainly, and it's, it's just flown by. I mean, it's a wonderful country to be in. I mean, as you know, you've been here, mm-hmm. uh, and um, yeah, and I once I arrived here, actually, I, I started to shed my my English background and um, started to take various Canadian guiding courses and, and various qualifications over here. And, and how would you characterize the differences there, either technically or philosophically, Dave, in terms of those similar but parallel approaches? Um, within the world of outdoor training or mm-hmm. training? Yeah, yeah. yeah, you said you, you started taking some Canadian qualifications. Clearly, you'd done some British ones. I just wondered what you noticed yeah. as the differences there. It, it was very difficult at first, actually, because... Um, the, the English system seems to be more main, mainstream, and I think because the government had quite a hand in how adventurous training pursuits are run in Great Britain. So I, I was working with the Mountain Leader Training Board. I was working my way through that. Um, 
all that experience helped me when I came over to Canada and I joined the, the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides and, and a bunch of other organizations and got my canoe instructor awards, ski awards and, and all of that. But it was different, very difficult, actually. And it took some time. But what, I got there in the end. <laughs> what, was, what was difficult about it, Dave? Well, each province over here seems to have it, its own certification level. And uh, that's changing more and more. Um, so to become qualified in Alberta, for instance, I became a canoe instructor with the uh, Alberta Canoe Association, as I believe it was back in those days. Um, but if I wanted to go and instruct in British Columbia, the province west of us, or Saskatchewan, the province east of us, I would have to, to take another qualification that they would recognize. So to transfer your qualifications you get in one province um, around Canada well, it was quite difficult back in those days, although it has changed. It's, mm. um, it's yeah, it's, it's moved on since then. Right, right. Um, so in terms of, if we, if we fast forward to now, um, and we, we might want to bridge that gap a little bit, in terms of, what you're doing now i know you're very much involved with the alone show now and we're certainly going to come on to that um mm. what were you doing immediately prior to um being involved with the alone show well i um as i say i worked with the the british army for for eight years teaching their well helping with their adventurous training programs and then i, I left them and uh, my wife and i started a, a company called mahican trails and um, Mahican is Cree for for wolf. Um, my wife is is Cree. She's indigenous, and um, she's has a number of outdoor guiding skills herself. So we set up this business, and we started to teach various skills, and um, hiking, snowshoeing, Nordic skiing. Um, my wife is. Uh, herbalist, so she teaches plant medicine programs and. Um, because she has a, an indigenous background and she has a medicine lineage within the Cree nation. Uh, she teaches a lot of traditional medicine as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, we were teaching wilderness first aid. We were running um, tour groups uh, around the Canadian Rockies. Uh, I was teaching survival, uh, bushcraft. Um, yeah, a number of skills. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So quite an integrated and in all-encompassing approach by the sound of it between the two of you yeah it, it it definitely is and i i think i suppose the question should be asked um you know how did i get into the bushcraft survival world um because i was into the into the mainstream outdoor industry yeah, yeah. and I, I always had this this interest in in survival and i i did teach a couple of small programs within the military and when I came over here, this disinterest followed me, and a chance meeting actually with 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 some guy at this this campground, this obscure campground in the middle of nowhere near Jasper, but in the middle of nowhere, and I happened to be chatting to him about uh, taking a, um, a bushcraft survival course, and I, I was looking at going down to the states, um, trained with Tom Brown, mm -hmm. and. <clears throat> And he told me about Morse Kahansky, this guy Morse Kahansky. And I said, well, yeah, I've seen one of his books around. And uh, the guy I was chatting to said, well, you should go see Morse Kahansky. He's more of a local bushcraft survival instructor. So um, I went and started taking courses with Morse Kahansky. And eventually, 12 years later, I ended up with this grand certificate from Morse, mm. um, declaring me as a, 
um, wilderness living skills instructor. That's fantastic. That's a wonderful accolade to have, definitely. And a sad loss recently as well to lose Moores. Yeah, he was one of the the giants of the subjects, really. Um, And so that was all down with Karamat, was it? Or were you doing things independently with Moors as well? Well, that's right. I I did it with Karamat. um, And I, I took three courses with Karamat. And then I, I went backwards to, to the uh, Rataroot Rendezvous that they, they have there every year. And then also in between, I was meeting with Moors Kahansky. I, um, on, on some other written projects that I was working on, Moors was helping me edit those. And we had long conversations um, about some of the work that I was doing there. Um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, so Randy and, and Laurie Brucemeyer with, with Caramat there. Yeah, good place to go. Yeah. Um. So we might as well jump onto the alone thing then, uh, Dave. You told me when we met last year that you originally applied to be on the show. Is that right? That, that's right, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I went along to their boot camp in, uh, in New York and, um, and then I wasn't accepted on the show. <laughs> and I grieved about it for a couple of days and then got on with my life. <laughs> and then the following year, I, I was invited onto the, the Alone show by, by a couple of the producers. And um, turns out that they were impressed with my skills on season one when I applied, and they'd like to have me as, as one of the survival consultants on season two. So I came in on season two, and uh, I've been there ever since. And so what's... What specifically is your role then as a survival consultant on the show, Dave? I, I think most people think that I sit around, drink coffee, or you know, for months on end, waiting for people to tap out. And uh, I wish I did. Uh, <laughs> it's quite. I, I do get quite busy. I'm, I'm, asked, I'm, I'm the lead survival consultant there. So, so what I do generally is uh, I, I arrive early, so I, I go out onto location. Uh, several weeks before anybody else arrives. I'll be there with, with one of the main producers for the, the show. And I'll mooch around and try and learn as many of the local plants that I can, the, the ones, um, to add to the ones I don't know. Um, I work with the, uh, the local fish and wildlife officers and uh, um, office, offices there and try and arrange the hunting and fishing permits and find out what we can and cannot harvest in that area. And if there are any local indigenous people there, I try and spend time with them as well, see if they've got any any useful skills uh, that our cast could use. And then we put that together in a cast handbook that each cast member gets when they they come out there. And um, when they arrive, uh, I'm with them for, for 10 days before launch. Um, teaching about the local flora fauna and um, any local uh, cultural tips that I've picked up there as well. Mm-hmm. So they're, um, they're effectively getting a 10-day survival course before they start? In, yeah, not a, not a complete one, but, but, but certainly, you know, we like them to, to, to know about some of the local idiosyncrasies and, 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 um, and plants which, which could benefit them while they're out there. Mm-hmm. And also, um, I, I go around with with the producer there, and we, we choose the the sites that we're actually going to use for the show. 
and for each cast member. And we try and make um, make each site um, as fair as possible, like a water source and plants, um, local animal paths going through the area, etc. Yeah, because I guess you want there to be as level a playing field as possible in terms of what they start with. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, I guess that's that's easy to say and write down on a piece of paper, but I guess that's actually quite difficult to do in practice sometimes. It, it is, actually. It takes us days, days and days um, to, to figure it out. And, and we, you know, heart upon heart, we really want to make it fair for each person. So we do spend a lot of time on the ground, and walking the ground, um, seeing what's actually there. Mm. And you've, I'm right in thinking that you've also got to put those spots far enough apart that they don't run into each other as well. Yeah, that's that's quite true. So we're going to have a buffer zone between each site. Uh, we've got to be able to access the sites um, safely, easily, and quickly. Mm. Mm. There's, so there's quite a few conditions to meet there then in terms of setting that mm -hmm. whole exercise up. Yeah. <coughs> Because um, I guess the cynical, the cynical people out there, and you see these comments sometimes, might think that you choose places that are difficult for people. No, not at all. And uh, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. I, I, I suppose some. Now I'm just thinking of some of the comments I read on Facebook, man. But yeah, <laughs> I, I spend a lot of time on the ground. Actually, it's 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 it's. Um, it's Certainly, a period where my fitness level goes up um, to quite, quite, quite a degree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, then you have to be there the whole time that the the show is going on. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, I get involved in in the the medical checks that we do. Um, we monitor. I'm monitoring with with other crew members, so it's not all me. It's um, other people there. A lot of a lot of people on the ground. Um, so we're monitoring for the cast safety. Um, I work very closely with, with our main producer then um, to look at storylines and, and how people are doing, monitoring the people, um, um, medical issues we, we might be concerned about, um, et cetera. Mm -hmm. and, then, and, then, and then sometimes I, I just go out as a, as a safety dude with, with the camera, one of our camera guys who shoots the B-roll uh, in the area. So... The, when when you see the TV show, of course, all the cast members one hundred percent shooting their own film there, but all the beautiful shots that you might see in between um, are done by professional cameramen just to to sew um, all the sites together when they move from one site to another on the show. Yeah, and I th I think that really helps give some context to the the landscape as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, now. One of the things I read somewhere is that um, participants are told that the show could last up to a year. Is that right? Uh, they are, yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. So presumably that means uh, that you could be there up to a year as well. Yeah, it's a strange, strange show. I, I, when I go on it, I kind of write off everything, and my wife has to to, to panic back here, running the company. And hiring other guys to take my place but, but yeah we don't really know when i'm coming back so i guess that's just uh i guess you know broadly the minimum it, it well you've got more data now haven't you we'll get onto the data it seems to me like the winners tend to win in about 70 to 80 days it seems these days 
So so far, yeah. Um, sometimes I forget how how long people have been out, and I, I go on to, to Wikipedia or whatever it is, and and, and just just check on the on the periods that people have spent out there. But yeah, it, it seems to be about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the the again, I, I'm I'm interested to know your perspective because i i only have my outside perspective and and as we were as i was saying before we started recording um i'm not the greatest uh tv watcher these days i, I simply don't have uh, the the time and even within this sort of niche that i work you know bushcraft in particular i don't watch a lot of these shows although alone does i think for me hold a little bit more interest than many of those shows because of the nature of what they're doing um but from my perspective, it seems like you have a certain amount of attrition early on, and then there's a sort of paced um, attrition after that. So it seems like there's a few people who leave quite early for various reasons, and then it seems to kind of settle down, and then you've got the, the, the few that seem to last until almost the end. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think you get that distribution of, of when people leave? Hmm. I suppose some some people arrive and they it's overwhelming. It might be if I could say that it, it might be overwhelming for some people initially when they arrive and um, they they've had all the big plans that they're going to set up. Their sites become comfortable, and when they actually arrive there, of course, um, thoughts of home seem to drag so many people away initially. And, um, yeah, I suppose that's it. The thoughts of home are just dragging people away initially. And, and then after a couple of weeks, people settle down and for various reasons, actually, which, which, which I put in my book, but, um, it's, it's, it's a hard, hard answer to, to, to give it to you in, in, in a short time that, that, that there are so many, um, so many things okay well we can, well we can dive into more of the details but i just wondered yep. if you had so clearly this, the psychology is a big factor mm-hmm. and obviously what maybe what items they choose because again the last time i checked they was it 10 items they can choose from a list of 40 they'll have 10 items so yeah yeah um so i guess the list the, the items they have might have an impact on how they do um the psychology will have an impact on how they perform, certainly at the beginning, if not in the long term. And then I guess there's some practical skill sets as well that maybe some people have and other people don't. Um, which of those do you think is most important then? Do you think the practical skill sets, the psychological approach or the kit that's chosen? If you had to rank those, I know they're all important, they're all interlinked, but if you had to rank them as most important to least important, which would you say? I think um, the psychological, um, the practical skills, and then the ten items. Most most people seem seem to to to, um, to choose the right items for their their survival journey. Um, if you talk to the cast members afterwards, there might have been one item, maybe two, um, that they regret taking, but. It's not a deep regret. So I think the psychological issues when you hit the ground, uh, when people actually find they they are truly alone. It's mm. it's mm-hmm. uh, it yeah. It's it's a hard hard task to to deal with those psychological issues. Yeah, and, and that if, will progress even further 
and become even more severe with with lack of food yeah absolutely absolutely so how how would you characterize if if you could the psychological characteristics that seem to or even just a sort of self-talk um not that they necessarily tell you everything that they're thinking but you know in terms of if you had to characterize the people who seem to do and i'm not just talking about the winners the people who seem to do reasonably well and last a reasonable amount of time and get past those first few days is are there any commonalities there in terms of their their psychology or their mental approach to it I think the people that, that I, I see on the show that, that do really well and, and deal with those psychological aspects are those uh, who are in the primitive skills community in general. That, that's how they live their lives. You know, they're going from primitive skill gathering to primitive skill gathering. And, and for them, when they arrive on their site for the show, it's just a new location where they're going to live. They're going to live at one with the land of their and so they're not fighting the land. It's just an extension of how they live their everyday life anyway, back in the States. Mm-hmm. And most of them are from the States, yeah? Most of them are, yeah. Yeah, where there is clearly a very strong primitive skills community, isn't there, and lots of gatherings. and Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, we, we have um, two winners, Jim and Ted, who are from Canada, who are from Canada. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you look at their background, and they have a very tough, adventurous background, yeah, I was going to come on to that because in some ways that's a, I mean, it's a slightly different setup there, isn't it, with the seven pairs in season four? Um, yeah. Yeah, and I guess they have each other to bounce off. Although what I've seen of, of the of those two brothers, uh, I've I've watched more of their you know the, of Jim's YouTube videos than I've seen of the alone stuff with them on, but they seem to bicker quite a lot, but in the end kind of get on okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're a great couple. They really are, and um, but they, that's that's how they live with each other, and and they they're tough, tough young men. They really are. Mm. I was highly impressed with them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I, I think their their deep discussions are, are just the way that they get through um, all of their everyday life problems when they're out on adventures. Yeah. Yeah. What was it in particular then that was impressive about those guys? Because you've sort of singled them out. I know it's it's one series where you've had pairs and it's different to the other series, but um, what was it that singled them out as as being impressive? Um, just the way they, they, they dealt with, with every day. And so um, <clears throat> I think they'll admit themselves that they didn't really have the bushcraft survival skills per se, but they had the outdoor expedition background. So that background is, is one that they would go on, on, on long trips. Jim, of course, he, he, Baffin Island, he was crossing Baffin Island just before he came on the show, I believe. Um, just him and his dog on these the solo trip in these extreme conditions. And they're both used to, to spending time in extreme wet or cold conditions. And, uh, and just that's just their everyday life. So when they're on the show and, and the, they had these wet, extreme conditions, um, it was just another day on, on an expedition for them. They're a little bit longer, but, but that's how they got through. Mm. So it, it seems to me both with the, the primitive skills um, characterization that they're living outdoors a lot, they're living in harmony with the land, um, often in very simple, um, sort of pared down uh, ways of life. 
and then you've got the guys the, the Baird brothers who have that experience of being out in the wilderness for long periods of time it seems like that experience of just being out for extended period of time is is a is a kind of good inoculation for just the baseline of being out for a long period of time on the show yeah and i i would say that and it i suppose it comes down to one of my gripes in the bushcraft world actually <laughs> while we're on it go is for it that, yeah. is that you, people will attend a, a one week or two one week bushcraft survival courses and then without any, without any prior experience apart from carving spoons or something and then then at the end of those two weeks they'll, they'll start to set up their own bushcraft school um, and, and they haven't got that, that hard experience of, of living outdoors of, of, of going through the everyday experience of getting so wet you've got no dry clothing left um, or so wet that you can't make a fire or you've gone out and got lost and you've had to spend a day trying to relocate yourself <clears throat> and I think those are all important skills to set up our, our outdoor, outdoor resume um, to then take further courses and become skilled and uh, declare ourselves as survival instructors. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you, Dave, actually. Um, I've had very similar conversations with uh, some of the guys who who work with me and that's what I'm looking for in people that, you know, move beyond just being, a, say, a camp assistant and people who are actually instructing. I want them to have real world experience, have made journeys, difficult journeys. Of course, if they've been working with me for long enough, they'll have spent a lot of time just living outdoors teaching, but that's very different to making a, a journey when you've got limited resources and you're at the behest of, of the weather and what nature wants to do to you. Um, but yeah, I think that's absolutely essential. I, I think there's a lot more to it than just a um, toolbox of, of skills, as important yep. as they might be. Um, and it, and again, interesting that you, that you put psychological approach and I guess mental toughness in amongst that above the practical skills in terms of that that hierarchy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, how do people? I mean, we talk about that. You know, Jim Baird walking across um, Baffin Island and dealing with his dogs, frostbite, and all the other things he had to deal with. Um, but that's kind of a very extreme way of of getting um, experience. How do people, in your mind, build up a a level of experience in the outdoors that's going to um, be fertile ground for developing that mental uh, toughness that they need for enduring? And let's not just talk about the alone show, but you know, difficult situations in the outdoors. Yeah, I, th I think it starts off with with safely attending courses, and I, I look back. I, you know, my period, I, I went off on a mountain leader course. I, I spent time at um, Kapilkurig there in um, in North Wales, attending courses. Pleasant Brennan, yeah, that's it. Yeah, so I spent time there. So you know, I, I was fairly safely um, being introduced to the outdoors. Um, and of course, North Wales soaking wet, um, but at the same time, learning how to, to be uncomfortable and, and, and then get comfortable. And slowly then I progressed on to, um, to reaching a skill level where I could lead my own expeditions and, and take those out. 
and uh, make my make mistakes, but happily live at the end of those mistakes and learn from those mistakes. Yeah, that's that's a key thing, isn't it? It's it's being just inside of that envelope where you're going to come to harm, but you're learning some valuable lessons. Indeed, indeed. Um, so back back to the back to the show. You mentioned a, a book, and um, I know that you've been writing. Uh, uh, something about how people deal with the lack of food and i'd be very interested in in that um i i'd also be interested to know you know the scope of the book and and for people to hear about that because i know it's it's coming reasonably soon um so could you give us a little bit about you know the overall scope of the book and then we can maybe jump into some um aspects of that and refer back to maybe uh, the seasons of the sh- of the alone show that people are familiar with perhaps because i guess that's a kind of a common thread of context for some people listening mm-hmm. to this yeah i just um i actually started off writing a, a survival book and then i was at moore's house one day and, and we, we we got into this big discussion on on calories and eating and um, he gave me some of his ideas and I was working with the Alone Show at, at the time, and I was, I suppose, initially figuring out that, that that perhaps in the survival world, we as survival instructors might be teaching um, the wrong facts, the wrong skills around food, just from what I was observing on the show. And it it led me to, to, to think back on other expeditions and trips I'd been on, observing people and, and how they eat and when they eat and what they eat. And um, anyway, it led me to, to, to then putting this book together. I'm, I'm, at the moment, it's going to be titled Counting on Calories to, to Survive a TV Show or, or Real Life Situation. Uh, but it's, it's split into three parts. And part one, I deal with how to sequence and, and prioritize what to do in a survival situation, because I think that's very important to do. Um, you must be able to sequence and prioritize um, quite naturally and, and instinctively within a survival situation. And you should practice that before you end up in a survival situation. So part one of the book is about that. And uh, and also some self-assessment skills before you, you actually um, move around in the outdoors um, solo or, or think about perhaps going on a TV show. Uh, part two, I, I start to, to look at... Um, what happens to someone in, in a long-term survival situation, so why we physically and mentally start to break down and deteriorate out there. And I look at what to eat, when to eat, or when not to eat. Um, the importance of nutrition in a survival situation, which I don't think too many people actually deal with. No, no, not really. There's a few things that I think I know, but I'm going to ask you about them um, in a minute when you finish giving us the overview yeah and um i've learned so much on the way myself actually <laughs> so i think from show to show working with with doctors and um psychiatrists psychologists um it's been a big learning process for me and um i've been careful to t- take notes keep notes on on, on what i've learned there mm-hmm. uh, uh-huh. And also having a look at our evolutionary past, you know, within the world of, of survival and starvation, because um, so many people think that because our, our ancestors would fast, you know, we still have that ability. Um, 
do we or don't we? I, I can't really answer that question, but I've brought up a few interesting facts that tie in with that. Um, part three, I, I, I deal with water purification, drinking water, uh, because ironically, there are so many people on the on the alone shell and and not only the alone shell but people here that, that I run into get themselves into trouble because of dehydration. This is just as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. And although they think they know about water and purifying water, well then I find um, deeply interviewing them that they don't know about um, true water purification, why we do it, how we can do it. Um, so, do you, do you, so just to jump on that, and I, sorry to, if that breaks your train of thought, but just do you do you mean that they don't understand how uh, how to actually purify water, like the technical sides, or do you mean that they don't appreciate how much work it can entail? It, that's both. Yeah, right. so I'm glad you thought about that, Paul. So, yeah, the work that is involved in in boiling water, you know, one has to get up. Go and collect your water. Um, you have to get the fuel to to to, to bring the um, the water to a rolling boil on a fire, um, and uh, that all takes effort. And you know, if it's raining outside or it's freezing cold outside, some people don't want to put in that effort, so they therefore become dehydrated because walking down to the to the, the river, the lake, or the creek um, takes a lot of effort, and, and and they don't want to go out in the cold to expose themselves to the colds to hydrate and consequently they'll end up dehydrated mm -hmm. and then they're in a in a vicious circle then aren't they yeah yeah mm. yeah and many other reasons tied into that of course but yeah 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 so sorry to sorry to jump in but i, I just thought that was worth clarifying oh. at that point you were you were going to follow on with another point after the water purification and dehydration that you mentioned yeah so Still on the kind of part three of the, the book, I, I'm looking at some of the main first aid issues that, that people, or illnesses that people might have to deal with when when they're out there surviving, and um, and certainly I, I saw many of these issues just in the military as well when we were on long term trips there, such as diarrhea, um, constipation, uh, small skin rashes, uh, and uh, issues of that nature. And I, I look at you know how we can actually cure them, how we can prevent those issues happening, uh, because you know you can have um, extreme constipation and extreme diarrhea can 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 actually um, cause you to to be evacuated from the back country. And uh, I think it's National Outdoor Leadership School down in the states that they were saying that you're more likely to be evacuated from the back country because of uh, gastrointestinal issues than than cutting a finger off or breaking a limb so those are very serious issues that i don't think people deal with or know how to deal with in many cases so i, I look at some some plant medicine there and some plants that would actually help people out in in those locations and, and that situation uh -huh. interesting very interesting very interesting um so to 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 jump on the the nutritional side of things because i guess um so uh, one one question i wanted to ask you you said um so just uh, sort of i'm coming around back to the the point um you said after observing what goes on on the show and and you know in terms of skills and facts that are taught so do you do you mean that some of the people coming on the show and what they're doing um as a result of 
what they've been taught or what they've read is is wrong or do you mean that you have more data now having seen people succeed over periods of time seeing what they do and so are you observing the positives are you observing the negatives or is it both what is it that's kind of drawing you to some perhaps different conclusions to what's been shared before i think certainly with with my conversations with Morse, um I mean, he, he quite often would say that, you know, if you, if you can't get enough calories to, um, to satisfy your, your, your basal metabolic rate, um, and my basal metabolic rate would require, say, 1,400 calories a day, and if I can't get the food to satisfy that, that BMR, um, and walking around would cause me to burn off more calories, then it's not worth eating in the first place. Um, and I, I suppose from those conversations, then I started to look at, you know, is it better to ration your food or save your food till later or not eat at all? So those were the quite kinds of questions that I was, um, I was asking myself and, and, I, and I try and answer those in the book as well. Mm, mm. Now, I, I used to work with Lars Falt um, a bit. Yeah. Um, and he uh, made me aware of some studies that the Swedish military had done where they had people just drinking water and doing whatever activities they were doing versus people that were getting, I think if I remember rightly, 500 calories per day through some source of complex carbohydrates in addition to whatever water they were being provided and then they did some studies on um, both overall weight loss um, but then also in terms of body composition um, fat loss and muscle uh, loss and the 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 assertion is that those people who were eating trickle feeding some uh, carbs in not only had slightly less weight loss than you know and that would kind of be a fairly obvious point they're getting some calories perhaps and um, so they're not having to completely find all the calories they need from from the body but the other interesting finding that seemed to be there was that the they lost less muscle mass than the people who were eating nothing um and uh, you know i've always taken that as reasonably authoritative but what are your findings around that do you have any thoughts around that that assertion i was looking at something called the the, the minnesota experiment which um dr keys ran back in 1944-45 i believe and um they had some volunteers who who volunteered to to to, to starve themselves and, and and take part in this experiment and the reasoning behind it was that they um they didn't have much knowledge about um long-term fasting and of course, people were being liberated at the time from various prison of war camps and concentration camps. And uh, as soon as they were being given food by the liberating forces, some of these people were dying. And so uh, mainstream science back in the USA decided to learn more about it. So, so I've, I've referred to the Minnesota experiment a lot and, I, and I've used that um, for a lot of my research. And I picked up various other experiments um, along the way, but well, what I'm finding and what, what I think one should do is, is the food that you have at the beginning, you should try and ration into, into larger, more realistic amounts. And rather than trying to break them down into smaller, unrealistic amounts over a long time, a long period, 
uh, you should eat those larger amounts over the first few days, and that will help sustain your body for a longer period, I believe. Mm. Is, <laughs> is that predicated on them tapering, like transitioning to providing food for themselves off the land because i guess in those first few days they've got everything to do haven't they they've got to establish they've got to get to know the area they've got to so get their bearings find where the resources are establish a shelter find firewood get firewood in all of those things about making yourself comfortable and then after that presumably they have a bit more time to start sourcing food from the environment so is is that part of that equation that you you know that you're coming to that conclusion about eating the food they have in those first few days while they're doing those other things is that part of the rationale yeah that's part of the rationale because that takes up a tremendous amount of caloric energy to to accomplish all of those tasks and you know and on, on my book doesn't just deal with it with the alone show um, no. it's no. it's it's you know it's, it's about regular outdoor activity survival events that one might find oneself sure. in. but you've got access to some interesting observations and data there with the alone show haven't you which can uh, absolutely yeah. which 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 can can, can perhaps perhaps <laughs> lead me to other conclusions yeah and of course um one of the 10 items um, that people could choose is is a bag of uh, Good old raisins and peanuts, or uh, trying to try and remember all the things myself here. But um, they could take beef jerky with them, for instance. So those are some of the choices that, that people have. And and I think that um, as I advise all the cast members that that uh, I'm against the rationing of, of that of that food um, over a long period. And I think you should eat it sooner at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in terms of when perhaps they've run out of food then um you know if they've done that they've eaten food and again we don't have to be talking about the alone show we can be talking about somebody who's just stranded for an extended period of time um and they're looking to feed themselves from the land whether that's through uh foraging all the various different elements of, of plant foods and, and things provided by trees and plants that could be eaten um everything from you know nuts and seeds through to underground storage organs and everything in between and getting fish through fishing trapping small game etc what should they be aiming to achieve in terms of uh whether it's you know because we have these days in the first world there's a bit of a there's a lot of negative press about carbohydrates for example um yeah. and there's a lot of you know low carb low carb diets no carb diets and a lot of that seems to be around losing weight um you know the atkins diet for example is famous for being you know high in fat and high in protein but people would still lose weight on it so in terms of what they should be targeting and i'm, I'm not necessarily talking about the effort to 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 get it but other things being equal what should they be targeting in your mind in terms of food from the land to sustain themselves over a longer period of time um i i advise people to to try and go for um for the animals um so we're looking at the fish and targeting from those fish fat uh you know our diet should be perhaps as, as high as 50 percent fat um from from the creatures that we, we harvest in the area, so we're looking at mainly fish. Probably they're the easiest um, creatures to get. Uh, here, of course, we have an abundance of snowshoe hare um, and squirrels as well. 
So if one could put out traps for, for those creatures and get those, um, that would give you an advantage. Um, I, I don't believe in a northern environment anyway that, that you could survive um, just on, on vegetation alone. Uh, so uh, if you're a vegetarian, you're going to die up here. <laughs> and, that, and that is the, the lack of vegetable-based, plant-based <clears throat> foodstuffs or just the caloric requirements or a combination of both? It's, it's a huge combination there. So, um, But it's a lack of fat in your diet. And for instance, um, we, we need animal fat um, to digest vitamins A D, e, A, D, E, and K. So if we don't have those vitamins in, those, in, our, in our diet, our, our, our condition kind of spirals downhill. So fat's clearly important. You mentioned squirrels and hares. Clearly there's not a huge amount of fat on those. So is that more about protein? Uh, the protein comes into it. Um, there's, there's a small amount of, of fat on those creatures, but then we break into the world of, of, uh, of protein poisoning, uh, rabbit poisoning. Some some people refer to it as rabbit, rabbit starvation. Rabbit, rabbit starvation. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. um, so one's eating a high amount of protein. Um, as a human being, we can possibly digest up to a thousand calories a day from our protein source. Um, so if we if we had a, a lump of meat that was 2,000 calories, well, our body, um, according to mainstream science, um, says that we can only digest 1,000 calories of, from that, that meat, and the rest of it would be a, a useless uptake that, that could um, cause our, our condition to actually deteriorate. And that's down to that metabolism of the proteins in the liver, is that right? And the, how much the liver can cope with? Yeah, the gluconeogenesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we so we need to be looking for fat, which of course is a lot more calorific per gram than proteins or carbs as well. Is that part of the reason why that's a good return on investment, or, or as well, the ca caloric density? The caloric caloric density of, of the fat, yeah, is 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 an extremely good return. I believe uh, when Ralph Fiennes and Mike Stroud crossed Antarctica, I, I think they were eating blocks of butter or something, and then um, yeah. Uh, certainly, you certainly. Uh, well, I, my wife's Cree, so I've, I've been to various um, get-togethers where we have moose nose soup for or moose nose stew, and um, when you eat that meal, there is just lumps of fat in there. The whole meal is all about fat, and there's hardly any meat in there. So you look at what the indigenous people eat here; um, it's quite incredible how much fat. Um, my mother-in-law, she would eat uh, dried moose meat. And she would take the moose meat and dip it into lard and, and then eat it that way. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Are you, are you familiar with uh, Daniel Moorman's uh, book on native uh, uses of plants in North America? Are you familiar with that book? Um, I'm no, I'm, I'm not familiar with that one, no. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the exact title of it, but it, yeah. it, 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 I, I believe that you can actually access the, um, the database um, online for free as well I'll see if I can dig that out for you but one of the interesting things there is that a lot of the a lot of the plant foods because again it's, it's based around use of plant foods but a lot of the plant foods you know that it often refers to them being eaten with you know fish fat or being you know added to fats for consumption I guess one of the classic examples that a lot of people know about is pemmican isn't there I mean there's quite a lot of oh, yeah. fat yeah. in pemmican but it wasn't 
solely that that you know there was a lot of things like they were mixing you know bear berry with fat they were mixing um all sorts of different berries with fat just as you know some of them even eaten as desserts as, as sort of puddings yeah and uh, uh, pemmican is horrible i mean if, if <laughs> no if, if you're well fed um and, and so somebody comes in and gives you a bowl full of pemmican you, you really don't want to eat it but having been outdoors for a couple of days and battling the elements um it's the it's the most tastiest morsel one can ever eat. It's mm. uh, incredible stuff. And, and the pemmican my wife makes is, is possibly 50% fat, if not more. Mm. So what goes into that for people that don't know? Is that is that what is there a particular animal that the fat comes from? Um, the fat comes from, from the animal that, that you've harvested. So it could be a moose, um, of course, very traditionally, if you have a look at some of the Blackfoot tribes in the area here, um, that it would come from the buffalo. Mm -hmm. They would have harvested, uh, and uh, it would be mixed with with the berry of, of that particular season. So um, the blueberries, I suppose everybody would know. But uh, we also have um, buffalo berries here, uh, a very tart, small berry uh, that could be mixed in, and um, and fat. So so the meat would be taken, uh, dried out into thin strips, and it would be. Uh, broken up, it would be ground into to a protein dust, and the berries would be dried and also ground into a dust mixed together with the fat. So it's it's not much to, to chew on per se, but it's yeah, it kind of melts in your mouth. It's it's really good mm. after three days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting that that fat craving that that you get. And I again, I remember reading accounts of people who. Um, were in that sort of rabbit starvation situation where they were sort of gorging themselves on very lean meat yet still feeling um, weak or feeling hungry after a while and some of them describe having a, a craving or a hunger for fat in particular so yeah yeah I think you have to listen to your body don't you in terms of of what it needs in that yeah. sense so in terms of food then do you have a, I, I, I don't want to give everything away I'd certainly want people to buy your book but are there any other and I'm sure people will regardless of what we say here um, do you have any other big takeaways that are either maybe non-conventional wisdom things that maybe turn what we maybe thought or what's commonly taught uh, on their heads yeah, without giving too much away in the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, let me think now. Because, of course, they're going to have to buy the book to get the full context anyway, even if you tell them the headlines. Uh, yeah, they are. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's the, in, the amount of food. And, I, um, and also, I talk about the animals as well, because so many survival books, uh, you, you'll see uh, a trout that's eight inches long that has 325.6 calories. Um, how does one know that? And, and how can you um, assess whether that animal does have 326 calories? But the, from, from season to season, the, the caloric value in that animal will, will change. And um, I've, um, I've referenced some, uh, some of the journals uh, from some of the expeditions across here where, uh, for instance, the Palliser expedition came across here in 1817. And... And they were eating buffalo meat 
and they they found later on that they've been harvesting the the wrong buffalo. They've been harvesting male buffalo when at the time of year when they needed that food, they should have been harvesting female buffalo um, because the female buffalo at the time had the most fat. Mm. And um, their local guides were um, had that knowledge that, that that they could pass on. And then later on in, in the year, there's a turnaround. The female buffalo have less fat, and then the, the male buffalo have lots of fat. So that happens within the whole of the animal kingdom. So we can't just rely on on a trout giving us 300 calories, for instance. It depends on the time of the year. Uh, it depends on the location of the of the creature as well. So it's, it's some of those those points that I look at there, and I, I do. I do have a look at, um, um, as I mentioned before, about how many calories we, we can get from, from eating meat because I've seen people eat meat for days on end yet still lose weight and they, they've eaten several pounds of meat a day but they, they'll, they'll still be losing about a pound a day because there's so much protein that they're consuming. They're not getting that enough fat. Yes. Yes, and and does, where does carbohydrate fit into this then, Dave? We talked about fat and proteins quite a lot. Where does where do carbs fit into your equation as, you know, the, other, as the other macronutrient? Yeah, and macronutrient there. So yeah, so you know, high up on the on the list is, is the fats, and then comes the proteins, and then of course, um, and then, and then comes the, the carbohydrates because carbohydrates in in the wild. Um, you know, will be the roots, will we'll possibly the, be, be the berries as well. And what comes with the carbohydrates, of course, is all the other mi um, micronutrients, such as the vitamins and the minerals, which, which are very important. So I address that in the book, and I've got a whole listing of, of why we need certain vitamins and minerals, because if you don't have them, um, you, your body's going to deteriorate. You're going to experience um, extreme muscle weakness. You're going to... Um, uh, uh, you're going to have sleepless nights. Um, uh, lack of certain vitamins and minerals can lead to depression, and so that all leads leads downhill. And I, I think I also addressed the, the point of, of the psychological issue of, of depression, in that um, if you're not getting the right nutrients, you're going to be depressed. So as much as you see on some survival shows where they say, "Well, this is," you know, bring out a, a picture of your, your your husband and wife, or sort of wife and kids, or whatever, and, and that'll make you feel good and just just get tough with yourself, and you'll be able to push on through the situation. Well, it, it's much harder than that because if you don't have that that the macronutrients that you need, you, you're going to be unable to push on through that situation because you need that nutrition um, to help you mentally. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so mo most people in the first world are, despite the increase in popularity of low carb diets, you know, even ketogenic diets, most people are running around with their brains, you know, consuming as much glucose as it, you know, glycogen as it as it wants to through the carbohydrate intake. Um, how do people cope with coming off that in your experience is that a, a big factor in if they're more used to operating on, on low blood sugar does that help or does it not help at all i think if, if they if they do steer towards a more primitive diet um, before they end up in a survival situation um, that will benefit them more because their body's prepared for the environment that they land in so it's not so much of a shock to the system so be more beneficial to go through that shock for your system moving onto a ketogenic diet um, before you, you you end up in a survival situation than doing it 
when you arrive. And of course, if one's planning on a, a TV show, well, you know when you're going to be launched. So you could work through that process uh, weeks ahead of time. Uh, of course, in a real survival situation, well, it's not something you can plan for. But I, I do believe if we have more of a, it's my own personal belief here, but I believe if we have more of a ketogenic diet, you know, we're, we're eating um, anything that, that runs around on legs or, or grows from the ground rather than refined and processed foods, um, we'll be prepared for life in general, surviving life in general, so that if we do end up in a survival situation, well, we're well, well ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. And would you would you recommend as as part of people's survival training that they that they maybe even go through intermittent fasting? Would is that something that you would think might help? You know, where they go through periods of not eating, going into ketosis, and then going back to maybe a more a more balanced diet. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's certainly a lot of research to say that those people who've practiced um, fasting, you know, for one or two days. Um, that they're, they're more successful and efficient moving into a fasting state um, in a safer fashion than those who have not practiced fasting before. And I think I've, I have actually observed that, and I think I've felt that myself because I've, I've tried this fasting thing myself, and, and certainly I feel more comfortable now um, fasting that, than I did do in the past. I remember when I first tried fasting for, for a day, two days, um, that I would actually feel quite sick um, and have flu-like symptoms, which I think people refer to as ketogenic flu. Um, but but now when I try the fasting for a day, two days, um, actually I find it um, quite a comfortable process to go through. Mm, interesting, like sort of stretching a muscle in a way. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. Um, so in terms of people operating then on low blood sugar do you do you see any effects of that on in your observations of people on the show or um just more generally um are there any pieces of advice you would give to people because being aware of what's happening to you is is half the battle isn't it and but but clearly you're not necessarily going to be thinking as clearly or you're going to be moving more slowly perhaps initially um any any piece of advice there for people transitioning off what they used to eating to to a, a situation where they're having to feed themselves off the land yeah I, I think it's it's not a natural process you know we we have to have the training to deal with that situation and you know when part one of the book i talk talk about sequencing and prioritizing the survival situation and so there should be training that, that one goes through. So it's instinctive. So that when you're not thinking too well, you're getting that brain fog because of lack of food, and your body just naturally carries on and, and, and moves on. Um, you don't have to think too, too hard about what to do next. And this also ties in with, with a great knowledge. You need a great knowledge of, of where you're going to to actually survive. Most cans can always say you need to know uh, have a knowledge of 250 plants to survive in your in the area that you happen to be in. Um, I believe it could be less than that, depending on the area that you're in. I mean, last year we were up in the Northwest Territories, and we had a, a, a huge abundance of, of berries there um, that people could live on and perhaps su- supply all the carbohydrates, vitamins, minerals that they actually need. So knowledge uh, really empowers you and, and helps you in your situation. 
Yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. Um, how do people get that knowledge then? Would you say in terms of the plant foods? I mean, there's a. Lo- I mean, what we're all com- what we're coming back to here is you need a lot of knowledge of animals, fish, <laughs> the seasons yeah. of plants. Um, and that, I guess, in itself might be overwhelming for people who want to skill up in these areas if they're not living with these things day by day. I mean, do you do you have an approach for people to to maybe start chipping away at that? Yeah, take a course with you, Paul. Um, <laughs> or you, or, 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 or Brenda. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Brenda, for sure. Well, actually, um, I'm training to be a herbalist now, so... Um, so I, I've always had this this interest in the plant world, and uh, yeah, a couple of years ago, my wife said to me, she said, "How I'm?" She said, "You should do a course on this, you know." So she said, "I need some assistance." But yeah, it's 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 taking the courses. Um, I, I believe there are many you can take in the UK. There certainly we've got a, a lot of courses here in, in North America. Um, Robert Dale Rogers is is one of my heroes across here, and my wife has spent time training with him. And uh, he is an expert on, on boreal plants and um, has many books. Um, my library is huge. I spend so much time reading. Um, YouTube, YouTube's um, turning out some, some great plant videos um, that one can can watch and uh, and then experiment with afterwards. I think believe quite safely as well. Mm. But it's also knowing what those plants contain. Uh, you know, do they have vitamins? Um, like, oh, God. Vitamin, is it vitamin or vitamin? I've been across here too long. Um, ah, but who vitamins, cares? Uh, I, I, as long as people understand, it doesn't really matter, I don't think. <laughs> know what vitamins the plants have um, as best you can. And know which which which, uh, which plants are, are really safe and, and one could use for, for stomach upsets, um, surface cuts, um, skin, skin abrasions, etc., um, but it's learning. It, it's learning. So I know many people, for instance, who can who, who can make a trap. Um, and I um, I spend time with people. They show me all these different traps, and some of them are just fantastic. I love it. I love trapping, and I love um, working through and, and learning all these new and different traps. But but quite often, when you pin people down, once they've shown you all these magical traps, I I, I say to them, you know, have you actually? trapped any animals in in those traps and they they'll turn around to me and say no i've never trapped an animal in my life but i know these great traps um <laughs> so it'd be nice if they actually went out there and, and experimented with them in in the wilderness and, and see how these traps work for um, for days on end i i went off and i joined the the alberta trapping association and became a, a trapper and, and that was part of my educa- education across uh, here with, with Ross Hemser actually he was at the, the global bushcraft there with us yeah well it's funny you should mention Ross because I'm going to spend a week with him after I've done the Karamat course when I'm over there so again similar similar thoughts find people who actually know what they're doing yeah and, and he uh, knows so much yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and learn from and learn from them yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things as well is that, you know, I think what's coming out of this conversation and it has come out of conversations with other people on this podcast as well, um, whatever level you're at, there's always more to learn and there is a there's a real depth of knowledge uh, required to make some of these things work in practice. You can have the superficial yeah. knowledge and, and have some nice party tricks almost in terms of things that you can show people, but actually making it work in practice is a completely different ball game. 
Yeah, and, and, and they really are the party tricks so often within the survival world or bushcraft world that, that you see out there on Facebook and YouTube quite often. But, um, it annoy me, but anyway. <laughs> well, it's just the, you know, it's, it's, it's getting attention, isn't it? That's the, you know, yeah. it's, it's the attention-grabbing yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas people aren't, I mean, in my experience, people aren't as willing to put effort into really learning a bunch of plants really learning how to fish well really learning some practical ways of of, of getting meat from the land um, they they want easy wins and they're not willing to do the research or read the studies read the books read the accounts of expeditions do hard trips themselves it's we live in a, in some ways we live in a very superficial world that said I, I, there is you know compared to you know 20 30 years ago there's a lot more survival tv around there's a lot more resources on the net around i mean people are clearly interested it's just i guess corralling people's attention to the right places in some ways isn't it i think so and it's it, it's great to see these these shows out there um because i believe it's drawing attention to our um, disappearing um, natural world because certainly you know we're lucky over here in canada um, we have a great deal of forestry to work in, a great deal of wilderness locations to work in. But look, <clears throat> I should imagine back in, in Great Britain, it's, it's a little more difficult. And perhaps there are people, there are people there who are asking the question, so you know, where's our natural land gone? Um, and it's now driving people to protect this natural resource and care for this natural resource. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, there isn't a huge amount of natural land left in the UK. I mean, we've not only are we a small piece of land in the global uh, scheme of things, we've also had human habitation here for pretty much the whole time since the last ice age, which is getting on for 10,000 years ago. We've had introduction of agriculture and the landscape's changed um, massively and then there's a large population density as well compared to say Canada or Australia or some of these south parts of South America for example and so yeah. so yeah so you end up with not very much wild land very managed environments no natural predators left for some species introduced species all of that going on and it's it, it gets you to a, a crux point and I think that you know there's a bit of a rewilding movement over here and that's got its um even amongst conservationists, I think it has its, um, it divides people as to whether or not that's the right way forwards and whether it's practical to reintroduce lynx or wolves or any of these things where they, where they once were with a number of, you know, sheep and people and family pets around and all that, there's all that kind of discussion going on. But yeah, it, it, I think people are at a point now where we, we are thinking, you know, what can we do to draw a line under loss of natural habitat and what can we do to reverse it but then the interesting conversation i think that goes on as well is that you know you can have you know us sat here in the uk kind of going oh well you know if we could turn back the clock maybe we do things differently in some respects and then you can see those things going on elsewhere in the world and you try and say well actually that's maybe not a good idea for you to chop that forest down and plant it with you know whatever or put cows there or, or or what have you and then you get the response well you did it so why can't we and it's quite a difficult cycle to break out of yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. um but it strikes me that 
you've you've used um, Vancouver Island, uh, you know, BC, a fair amount for the show. You've used Northwest Territories. You've been down to Patagonia and you Mongolia, I think, one series as yeah. well. Yeah, Mongolia, yeah. Yeah. I mean, how, how hard do you have to look now to find the sorts of places that you can run these experiments, if we call them that way, these challenges? I think experiment, experiment is a good word, actually. Uh, <laughs> um, it's Yeah, it's very hard uh, because we have to seek those remote locations that we're still able to, to harvest uh, as our ancestors could. Um, and, and certainly not, not upset the local fish and wildlife regulations as well. So it's, uh, yeah, it can be quite difficult and it is quite difficult. So, you know, goodness knows where we're going next. And, and, and I don't know. So <laughs> mm. <laughs> until I get an obscure phone call and say, hey, we're going here. Great, let's go. Um, yeah, it's, it's a big process, though, that, that happens. Um, and there is a great deal of thought that, that is put into it. Well, that's that's good to know because I guess some people, again, the cynical people, and there's plenty of them out there, think that there isn't a lot of thought that, that goes into these things. But to me, it seems that the, the clearly there is. But. Yeah, yeah. But quite often we, we joke about it. It'd be nice to have a behind-the-scenes alone show um, to explain a, a lot of what goes on and, and that we don't sit around drinking coffee all day. Uh, <laughs> It'd be great. I'd, I'd love that. And I, I think people would enjoy that. Yeah. I'm sure they would. Maybe a YouTube series or something might be might be quite good. L lower production values and you could probably put it out quite easily um, in some for people to watch. Or ex or extras on the on the channel or something. I don't know. I'm not I'm not familiar with how all of these different delivery channels kind of integrate these days. There's so much so many I, one of my frustrations now dave and it's got not not much to do with this conversation but i'll i'll vent it um is that we kind of went through this process where you had terrestrial television and then you had satellite television with alexa sky or, or what have you here in the uk and, and you could pretty much get everything you wanted to watch in one place and even when we were in the days of the video store you could go down to a good video store you know blockbuster or a local independent store and get as long as they had it in you know somebody hadn't taken it out that evening already you could get the film that you wanted to watch in one place um yeah. or you could go onto your satellite um tv and you could go onto discovery or national geographic or whatever and watch the documentaries or shows you wanted to watch whereas now with the proliferation of different platforms we seem to be going in the opposite direction where you've got netflix you've got um you know, Apple, you've got Amazon, you've got all of these different platforms and none of them speak to each other. It's it's kind of quite frustrating as a user um, trying to find things to watch. Not yeah. that I spend a lot of time trying to find things to watch, so maybe that's why I find it frustrating that I just want to watch something and I can't find it. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I spend so much time learning, I suppose, now. I, I, I'm, you know, watching YouTube. YouTube, I, I think my wife and I watch the most, actually, out of anything and just picking up on, on various um, experts out there and trying to learn from them mm. or, or critiquing some of the, the people who need more expertise. But Yeah, 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 time. yeah. No, I, I'm the same. I do I do spend um, a good amount of time looking at YouTube, YouTube videos. As I say, I've enjoyed quite a few of Jim Baird's trips on his YouTube channel. And, yeah, uh, he's got great stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're good shows, good shows for sure. So you you spend 
you spend a lot of time out working on the alone shows um have you had a, a favorite location to be in Oh, Notwithstanding any that any that you can't tell me about yet, but you know, in terms of the ones that have aired, did, have yeah, you... yeah, certainly the, the ones that have aired. Um, you know, I really have loved them all. Um, Mongolia was 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 certainly very interesting, and just the, the people who who helped us make that show were just absolutely fantastic, um, and had such a great time with them. I remember bouncing down the road in a Russian truck to go and repair the road, which, yeah, sometimes we have to repair roads and all sorts of things. And, um, Argentina was just beautiful. Um, very still, very tranquil. Uh, but I, I think at the moment, um, my favorite place has been the Northwest Territories. Mm. And we, we worked with the uh, Dene Lutzelke nation up there. And they were very, very kind. Um, they helped us out a lot. And uh, I learned some more skills from them, which was great. And the location itself um, was so wild, so truly wild. So, yeah, last year, Northwest Territories, great. No, it sounds, sounds wonderful. And, and I remember um, Ray Mears, um, who I used to work with, he, I think, made a show with some... Dene uh, First Nations people and yeah. it seems like their traditional knowledge is somewhat more intact than maybe in some other places in North America is that right? Yeah um, definitely so um, they, they, they have quite a connection to the land and um, I spent time with some of their elders who, who were able to, to give me um, some information on, on some of the berries there that, that I wasn't familiar with. We don't have um, crowberry down here, for instance, but they have crowberry up there. Um, they have a, a northern... Um, gosh, so that's Mpetrum Negrum, is it, that one? Yeah, 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 yeah. So we have a lot of that over here. I mean, you get it in the moors up in Scotland, so I'd be interested. Did they have anything uh, particularly interesting to say about it? Um. Yeah, they use it as a dye, um, and and of course the, the beautiful thing about that berry, you know, it, it, it appears in the fall, and it's still there um, in spring the following year, mm -hmm. um, which 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 was good. But yeah, I mean, they mainly use it as a dye, and I, I was looking at trying to turn it into a tattoo ink with my uh, with my buddy on the Alone show there. Um, so yeah, we're, we're we're not just drinking coffee; we're also <laughs> Tattoo tattooing each other as well. Primitive. Uh, well, he was making primitive tattoo needles. So, um, and that's that's Adam, um, my buddy there. So, yeah. Do they do they use it for food at all, Dave? Out of interest. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah they do. And um, and that was the interesting thing. They um, last year they uh, they gave us a fire ceremony and they introduced the cast to to hand games. Uh, they brought along some of their traditional foods, which was fat, fat, and fat with a little bit of meat and some berries in, and more fat. Um, <laughs> which is great, great stuff. But yeah, I was, I was looking at their, their fishing techniques, um, the fishing nets they, um, they've made there, and I was talking to them um, about migration routes uh, and their, their trapping techniques. And interesting, all of their trapping techniques are really simple really simple nothing complicated at all mm, mm. and and what are they track is it is it snowshoe hair and, and other yeah. uh, snowshoe rabbits hair. up there 
Yeah, um, of course, they, they, they have more mainline trapping as well. So they'll be using modern traps like conibear spring traps, for instance, um, because they, they sell their furs. But all, you know, for the smaller critters, they'll be making snares out of sinew, um, uh, tamarack roots, uh, and um, more... Uh, more materials to be found on the land for their snares. Mm -hmm. But of course, they use wire as well. But. Right. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of their fishing nets, what are they making their nets from up there? Um, we were having, well, I've shown some, some nets that were made from, from uh, nettle um, and also from, from sinew as well. Oh, interesting. And some, some rawhide as well. Yeah, very interesting. What sort of size are those nets? Are they sort of quite large gill net style nets? Are they for for lake use? It, it depends. You know, um, one of the nets I initially looked at was about two meters long by about a meter in depth. Um, but some of them can be very long. Um, I think I've seen them up to to around uh, ten meters long hmm. uh, by about one to two meters um, in depth. And of course, they push through the ice and uh, pushed along underneath the ice to another hole um, further down, which is quite a complicated process, but um, right. it's good to see. <laughs> so are they, are they mainly using the nets? Is it mainly for winter use, is it? Mainly for winter, yeah. All right. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. And do they, do they you talked about migration routes, do they still get caribou up there, do they, coming through? Yeah, the, the, the caribou um, are still there. Um, the, the caribou herds are dwindling. Um, they've they've many seen a big drop-off, haven't they, in the last few yeah, decades? It's, um, it's, it's interesting. You know, as I say, through many reasons, perhaps if you come down to Alberta here, you know, our caribou herds are probably dwindling because of, um, of oil exploration and, um, and packs of wolves as well. Uh, up there... They're, the dwindling populations of caribou uh, are accordingly being replaced by expanding populations of muskox, which we saw quite a few of up there. And they're an ungainly prehistoric-looking beast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are, they are kind of weird-looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that does sound like quite a fascinating place to to spend some time, Dave. For that, yeah. uh, for that period. Yeah. How long were you up there for on that? Was that series? That was series six, wasn't it? Series six. Yeah, I was up there um, four months, all, all in all. Um, and yeah, it's a, a long time, but certainly, if we're not out with the cast, we're we're kind of wandering around the bush. Well, I'm wandering around the bush, um, looking for new plants and trying to process the plants and experimenting myself a lot of the time when I'm up there and uh, getting into a little bit of uh, spoon carving as well that keeps me sane. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, painting watercolors, which I, which I do as well. Yeah, I think there's, there's something nice about art that it's like anything that makes you observe your surroundings in more detail. It kind of connects you more with the, the landscape, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, mushrooms, um, and I don't declare that I'm an expert with mushrooms. In fact, it's another course I'm taking at the moment. But um, I, I, I like to pick the mushroom. I like to take a good photo of it. And then I'll, I'll spend time in the evening sketching it and coloring it in. I find that helps me um, get in touch with that, that, that 
that particular um, mushroom or, or plant, whatever I'm, I'm, I'm working on at the time. So that, that's just one way I, I, I kind of remember what I'm, what I'm, what I picked that day. Yeah, like guess, guess it forces you to again look at the detail, doesn't it, and spend more time yeah. observing it. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, I think you know a lot of people I know now in the bushcraft survival world love to journal. You know, that's within a book, um, and then of course video journal as well. Mm -hmm. and, um, and and paint and draw. And I, I think that's, that's a great addition to our skills. Absolutely. Did, did you have a background in, in art or anything, or is it just something you've developed for yourself along the way? It's, I've always had this background. My, my mum's quite the artist. My, my grandfather was, was a, quite an artist, a really good artist. And so it, it's there, I suppose, in my, in my genes. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I've, uh, wherever I've gone, I've sketched and, and made simple paintings. And, uh, and if, if I had more time here, I think I'd, I'd do some more paintings, but I seem to be drawn into just everything bushy that happens in my life here. You know, we have so many skills we have to become accomplished in. Um, yeah. Actually, the painting takes a little bit of a background and until I'm there on the show drinking coffee for days on end. Uh, <laughs> something to do. <laughs> Um, one thing we jumped over kind of early on in the conversation but it'd be interesting to go back to was what was the and, and especially given what you've just said about the artists in the, in the family what was the motivation for joining the army in the first place for you <coughs> oh gosh um I think it was my brother actually. He joined the army, and then he joined actually. He was a um, Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers, and then I wanted to join the army. My father was actually in the Air Force. He was he was a pilot in the Air Force, and and he said to me, he said, I, I don't care what you do in the army, so long as you learn a trade, and don't just join the infantry. So I. Um, Ended up in the engineers because of all the different building trades that we could we could gain while while serving there, um, but it was a life of adventure. I think you know I wanted to travel. I wanted to to certainly um, see different parts of the world, live in these different parts of the world, and yeah, I think it was all the commercials that were flying around at the time that drew me in, and and certainly I managed to do that, and and I managed to take what I'd learned, and I find found myself. Um, for instance, I did a couple of tours in Central America and Belize. Um, one of the books I, I had was, was a Tom Brown book on survival. Hence, I was going to do a Tom Brown course later in my life. That's, that's what led me to wanting it's, to go. It's funny how books do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so part of my, my, respons well, my responsibilities in Belize was, was running a water purification point. And so we had all these, these wonderful engines and filters all connected up so I'd go down and I'd start them in the morning and then I'd have to stay around there just to make sure everything was running properly and I'd, I'd set foot into the jungle there with my Tom Brown book and I'd be making atlatls and slings and uh, traps and just playing around by myself. Sounds like you've often had some great opportunities to to experiment you've, you've had some dream jobs from the perspective of probably quite a few listeners to this podcast <laughs> yeah I, I, I'd, I'd like to say lucky but I, I, I remember 
a mountain guide over here saying saying it is not luck, Dave. It, it was the choices you made. Absolutely. And, and and you steered yourself to this this present point in your life um, through all all the courses you've taken and the experiences that you chose to to embark on, um, and not just sit around at home doing nothing. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, you you do make your own luck in that sense, and also the decisions you make are. I mean, I have similar conversations with people, um, you know, whether it's around the campfire on a course that I'm teaching or someone who emails me and particularly young people, they're interested. Um, I think we serve young people particularly badly in terms of careers advice at school. I know the careers advice I had at school was particularly poor um, and and quite one dimensional. and that's not necessarily criticism of the individual teacher who was put in that particular position. I guess somebody had to do it. But, you know, the whole infrastructure around giving young people advice, um, because I think there's a lot of things that we take for granted about how the adult world works and the world of work works. And, you know, people feel like they don't have as much choice as they do. And I think you get a bit older and you realise that you've actually got quite a lot of choice in terms of, you know, as long as you're willing to make certain compromises in other areas, perhaps, um, you've got a lot of choice in terms of what you do and how you do it and moving from one career to another. But yeah. we don't do a very good job of tra- transmitting that to young people these days, I don't think. No, I, I, I don't think so. You know, and it's, I, I think it's ironic now that um, the opportunities available to young people um, there are so many opportunities out there, but but at the same time, there are so many distractions that, that perhaps I didn't have when I was a kid, like computer games, etc., video games. Um, and I'm I'm thankful I didn't have those distractions as a, as a youngster because I'm sure I would have gone down that route actually. <laughs> yeah, it's it's easy to uh, I mean they're, they're designed to be entertaining for long periods of time, aren't they? Those those yeah. games and um, yeah, I mean. I think it's it's fine if you want to be a drone pilot or something, but <laughs> perhaps yeah. otherwise it might not be the best use of your time. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I I know I um I, I still teach people how to shoot because I, I teach hunter education as well across here. So okay. um, quite quite often I'll, I'll have a youth there and uh, they get so frustrated shooting a, a rifle on the range because the rifle is not behaving in the same fashion as, as it does on a video game when one pushes a button or a, um, a guiding stick up and down and pushes a button to shoot you know there's there's a lot of thought there's a lot of things going on when you're pulling the trigger so yeah yeah so anticipation presumably things like anticipation of recoil and breathing yeah. and all those sorts of things that you don't have to do on a on a computer game yeah yeah and knife crafters too, as well. <laughs> it goes on to that. Yeah, I frustrated children um, handling knives, and they can't figure out why they they can't do what I can do, and, and they've got to understand there's a whole process there as well. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I see that with adults actually, even now. I mean, uh, you know, I guess we've, I guess we've got to a point now where there's plenty of people in their 30s and 40s who've grown up with the internet and with computer games and even I guess young adults now that have grown up with mobile phones um, and I do sense that one of the you know I, I'm I'm not so negative about certain aspects of the technology but one thing I have noticed I think and I and it's 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 you know me putting my 
um, observations together anecdotally. But I do seem to think that people expect thing, practical things to come easier than they than they do um, because it's very easy to click a button. It's very easy to, you know, order something on Amazon or, you know, click a button to achieve something on a spreadsheet or, or what have you. And a lot of practical things are less immediately achieved than than those things. And I think that that's again going back to the psychology and the mental training. People aren't used to going through a learning process that is maybe a little bit more prolonged and also the physical effort of achieving something, even you know, carving something requires less immediate gratification. Um, and I see that quite a lot these days, people getting frustrated with themselves and not necessarily even knowing why they're frustrated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's an interesting an interesting world, but then again, I also see a lot of people coming on courses because they feel like they have a lack of connection with the natural world, and it's one of the things that is a commonality with why people come on courses with me in the UK is that they feel like they want to connect more with with nature, but then there's this process they have to go through that they realise that it's maybe not quite the same as watching certainly not as passive as watching a YouTube video or an, or an episode of Alone. Yeah, 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 <clears throat> definitely. And, but it, I'm so pleased, you know, people have all these schools that they can go to and to, to learn these skills. So, yeah, which are, I don't think they were around when, when I was a youth. No, it didn't seem that way. I mean, I remember I used to, there used to be a couple of sort of fairly low production quality survival magazines in the UK. And I remember clipping a, an advert to Lofty Wiseman's school. He, he taught down in Devon for a while. Um, yeah. And then when I came back around, I kept it in a folder somewhere and I, I wrote off to the PO box or whatever it was asking about the current courses and, I got a short note back saying that he no longer did that, but yeah, it was actually quite hard to find someone to that you felt was competent to teach you anything useful um, back in the day. Whereas the, the, there is now a proliferation of, of places people can go and learn, which is good, and they're easier to find. I think because because of the internet, you can do a Google search and find find yeah. some stuff. One one question that I had for you, Dave, and it does pertain to alone, but I think it. And I think you've got some insights because of that, but also, you know, to your book work more generally. Do you think there's a romanticism about living off the land that's out there in wider society? Do you think there's just an overly romantic idea about being able to go and live off the land? I, I do believe there is. And, and certainly it. I've observed that and just listening p to people talk to me and, and by the questions they ask me, uh, they, they have this, this, this romantic view, um, not realizing, of course, that it's, it's just plain hard work when you're there and um, certainly plain hard work living by yourself, but of course we, we come from these, um, this ancient lineage where we live together in tribes and of course you know, we work together as a tribe to create time for ourselves to engage in in art and 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 learning. But when you're out there by yourself, no, it is just damn hard work. Mm. And yet, it still seems that people aspire to be 
self-sufficient and stand on their own two feet and you know i often have people again on courses who feel like the ultimate would be to go out and survive on their own for a period of time do you do you think that there's almost a sort of inbuilt psychological rite of passage there because i think once people have done that a bit a little bit like maybe the walkabout that aborigines in australia would have to do as their kind of rite of passage i think once you've done that you kind of appreciate being with other people a little bit more and what everyone brings to the party in terms of sharing the load yeah so so people have, do have this romantic attitude about spending time by themselves and and they, they get out there and, and find it it's, it's much harder than they thought because they don't they don't have the knowledge which they need and then there are people who, who do view it as a rite of passage um, as well so uh, they want to prove to themselves they have the skills to be able to last for a long period of time and and they want to learn those lessons of getting of getting getting skills wrong or just just getting life plain wrong out there you know setting their traps incorrectly not being able to get certain foodstuffs um, and they know that will benefit them in their future life as survival instructors or or just within their regular life i, I think that the struggle that they they work their way through to help them in their modern day life mm-hmm. 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 and do you think there's a real because it strikes me whether you're talking about running a, a small business or being in one of these situations that we've been talking about that being just willing to accept a failure that an idea doesn't work that something isn't paying off and rather than getting down about that is trying to be positive and say okay what are the lessons from this and then moving forwards building on that lesson you've got to go out there and 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 accept that you're not going to be successful in every area that you're going to fail in certain areas and then it's I suppose one needs to learn how to fail. And um, one of the, the skills that I mention in, in, in my book that teaches you how to or get you through that failure is, is learning emotional freedom te- techniques, um, which is kind of tapping. You, you, tap, you tap on energy mer- meridian points. Um, and that can help you through a, a situation. So there are strategies, there are skills that one one can employ to, to help you through stressful situations or if something goes wrong. But you've got to be prepared for things going wrong and, and not being hard on yourself. Yeah, you've got to be kind on yourself. The world, life's difficult enough, isn't it, without you beating oh, on yourself God. as well? Um, it, without Again, without giving too much away from the book, would you mind explaining... Because I'm, I'm not familiar with what you're talking about there in terms of the meridians, etc. Would you mind explaining a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, yeah very basically. Um, certainly, there's, there's, um, there, there were some um, psychologists, doctors um, found that um, using EFT, where one taps on certain points of your body, um, and you, people listening to this can actually look up EFT on, online, and you'll be overwhelmed with the information there. Um, but it's, it's one of those marvelous birthday presents that my wife bought me. We went off and did a EFT course and she's a, she's a practitioner instructor in it. But, um, in those situations, if one is overcome by stress or um, decision making, um, and the anxiety is becoming overwhelming, um, you can tap, for instance, on, on 
the karate chop point on, on your hand, right? say your left hand. If, if you hold up your left hand and then you know, with, your, um, with your index finger or two fingers on your right hand, um, you can just tap on the karate chop point. And you will help that, you, always, or you will find out that that actually relieves some of the anxiety and lowers the anxiety to a point where you can think clearly again. Interesting. Is, it, is, is there any link to to sort of Chinese medicine and, and acupuncture points and that I, I, type I think there is. There is a certain certain linkage there <clears throat> with with some of the acupuncture points. Um, and, you know, I just described in one of the areas to tap on. You, you can tap on your, your fingertips. There's ways of, of doing that. If, if you go online, check it out there. No, um, I'd be and, interested, yeah. Yeah, and then there's... Um, if, if, if my wife has a patient, for instance, um, uh, you actually uh, start off tapping with both both hands on the top of your head, um, points around your eyes, you know, below your nose, your chin, and it's surprising how quickly you can defuse a, an anxious moment um, and, and reduce that anxiety to a point where you can think clearly again. Of course, what you have to think about is, well, I've got to do EFT now to get me through this anxious moment rather than going to full um, fight, flight, or freeze, which I talk a lot about in the book because that just that just messes you up big time if you're in this, this area of fight, flight, or freeze. Mm. Yeah, um, that'll be interesting to read what you've what you've written about that for, for sure, for sure. Um in terms of the other thing, you know, we've sort of gone on to slightly more esoteric things there, perhaps by by some people's reckoning. But um, have you have you any idea about whether any of the successful participants um, partake in things like meditation when they're not on the show, or even if they are on the show? Um, some have, yeah. Is there a positive correlation there between people who do? do well in terms of either mind, mindfulness or meditation of any other type? Morse Gahansky has, has, has his creed, or creed in, in the beginning of his books, you know, he's just saying, you know, the land is neither for you nor against you, and so it goes on. I, I should know it by heart now. He's told it to me so many times. But um, I, I think if you arrive and, and don't fight, with the land, you accept that you're part of the land, you move with the land, you move consciously on the land um, and have a deep regard for it, you're going to be more successful. And that's what I take away from a lot of the people that I see. Um, mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. It does. Are there any um, ways of thinking? that you've learned from your wife Brenda in terms of either her specific viewpoint on the world or um, her uh, First Nations um, perspective on things are there any things you've learned there that you've not been able to learn in other places yeah there it's going to sound a little weird but uh, my, my wife teaches an exercise um, she names it as traditionally been taught to her, and it's called walking on your grandmother's face. So the land is your grandmother's face. So if you were walking across your grandmother's face in all reality, you would have to walk very, very gently. 
and you would have to feel the connection to the land. And um, when we, when she teaches that exercise, um, everybody takes their boots off and uh, they walk across the land, caressing the land with their feet, feeling the land and moving across it, noticing everything that's around you, the, um, the way things smell, um, the different colors that are around you, the, the breeze on your face. Um, that's the essence of, of that exercise. And then there's another one, um, seeing through our, our eyes, which uh, John Young teaches on the West Coast. I think it's a command school. Um, and certainly an exercise where one stands looks across the wild landscape and slowly you engage each sense um, one by one so um, I'll get people to I'll guide them through um, the smells that they might be smelling in the area and smells that they probably haven't noticed before but might by me simply mentioning that there's a, a certain odor in the air they suddenly tie into it then I'll get them to open their eyes and look at the colors. I'll, I'll get them to breathe in deeply. Um, and uh, yeah, so I guide them through all these, these sensor, sensory um, exercises when they're out there with seeing through our eyes, which, which the Cree do as well here. Mm. And is that to, uh, is the aim of that to engender more awareness, um, more sort of, being present in the in the moment is that is that the aim of yeah, that definitely to be more present in in that particular location and then when we've done it with with clients of ours um we we actually walk off after it and for the first 10 minutes we we, we invite people to say nothing but just just walk through that landscape and then give a report at the end of that 10 minutes of, of what they've noticed and is it more than they've ever noticed before when they've been simply walking through the landscape that's that's interesting. That's interesting. It, it ties in with a few of the things that we do on our tracking and nature awareness course. That's that's yeah. very interesting. And, and do, do you find that people can't look into the forest? You you have a you have a facade of trees there, but people can't look beyond that facade into the depths, the interior of the forest. You know where, the, where there are plants growing there that they can't see. Like I point out a plant to people, and and and. And their eyes stop at the trees right in front of them. They don't know how to look around the tree, through the forest, and into the forest. And that plant might be there. Yeah, ab absolutely. So I think there's there's two things there. One is, as you say, that they just see the facade and they don't look into. Um, funnily enough, one of the things I find really useful with that is when you introduce binoculars to the equation. I find that that kind of forces people to look <coughs> into the woods but and then when they're not using the binos they can they can more easily do it afterwards but then i think the other th problem you have with with people trying to single out particular trees or plants is if they're not familiar with many species which a lot of people aren't which is you know why one of the reasons they're on the course perhaps um they have a difficult time differentiating literally seeing the wood for the trees as it were they just see everything yeah. as the same thing and you have to get them to tune into the differences between different species and different individuals within those species before they can start isolating them in their conscious brain as it were yeah yeah absolutely it's interesting it's interesting yeah. um 
I, I think the, the the last thing in terms of what we touched on that perhaps I want to circle back to Dave is the water purification point um, that we, we talked quite a lot about nutrition we talked a little bit about sequencing and, and again I'd love to know more about that but I would encourage people to to buy your book and I'll certainly be queuing up for a copy when it's when it's published um, but the water purification point um, what are the main things that you think people aren't doing generally and um, we're not just talking about alone but but generally um or that don't know that they should know um even if you don't dive into all the details here they can they can clearly get that from your book but what are the headlines there in terms of what are the misconceptions what do people really need to be doing how much water do people need to be drinking do they need to be drinking more if their diet changes what what are the things that people need to know there yeah i mean the there is a, certainly a few few issues there. Um, you know, starting off, I think people boil their water too long, mm -hmm. and um, really, you, you just need it up, need to bring it up to to uh, a level where it's going to be pasteurized and keep keep it there for four minutes. So, well, gosh, I'm going to pull this figure out of the air, but I think it's 65 degrees or 67 degrees Celsius. If you um, <clears throat> bring water to that temperature for four minutes, it'll be pasteurized and, and it, will, it will kill all the bacteria, protozoa in there that, that will harm us. Um, of course, the problem is that you're not gonna carry a thermometer in the bush, so you bring it to a rolling boil and you know you're at 100 degrees Celsius or whatever, depending on your altitude. <clears throat> so if you bring it up to that temperature, take it off the boil, um, and let it cool down so it's cool enough to drink. Well, it's okay to drink. You don't need to have it on a rolling boil for four to ten minutes like so many books tell you. And um, you might be wasting a lot of fuel um, in the process unless you're cooking a meal at the same time or whatever. Um, so that's one point I like to get across to people. Yeah. Um, and, and process of, of water. So a lot of people like to drink cold water. Um, there is some evidence out there that, that cold water does upset our digestive system. Um, and the two Russian scientists that Moore's introduced me to that have got extremely long Russian names that won't come to my mind at the moment, but um, they, they had experiments or conducted experiments where, where they believe that, that drinking boiled water is more beneficial for you um, than, than drinking cold water. So water that's been boiled recently and, um, and you drink it quite quite soon after it's been boiled, say 10 minutes or so, um, it's more beneficial for your body. Um, another one I, I get asked a lot is, is snow. Can we eat snow? And I, I always say, yeah, you can eat snow. Um, but normally if I eat snow, it's, it's when I'm snowshoeing or cross-country skiing along, and I'll pick up a, uh, a handful of snow, I'll, I'll compress it down into a snowball, and um, a mouth-sized snowball, and then um, push it into my mouth so that it doesn't touch my lips and chap my lips. And then I will let that melt in my mouth as I'm, I'm skiing along. Yeah, it's hard to get enough snow to satisfy your, your um, how, how many liters of water you need to drink a day, but um, at least you're topping up your reserves as you ski or, or snowshoe along. Yeah, I guess there's that old <clears throat> wives' tale about not eating snow, isn't there? Which I guess if you're static and you're cold to start off with, it might not help in terms of your core temperature. But if you're exactly. ac if you're active and you're giving off heat, which you would be if you're snowshoeing or skiing often, yeah. then there's I can't see there's much issue other than sort of contact freezing or anything like that. No, and I've got one of the um, 
small vodka plastic bottles that, that you can buy from a from, from a liquor store. Certainly here, I, I don't know about England, but um, small bottle and and then um, I'll, I'll I'll fill it up with water before I start my journey, and then every time I drink from it, I'll top it up with snow, and then I'll, I'll just put it onto the inside layers of my jacket there and that snow will melt as i'm as i'm traveling along there mm. so do you, do you have that on some sort of cord or strap or harness or is it just go in a I pocket i have it on, on a little neck string there as yeah. well um if, or if, if, if the neck string gets in the way um you know the lanyard there whatever i i just put it into a pocket of, of my jacket yeah <clears throat> my um, jacket generally got so many pockets i'm, I'm not lucky <laughs> It's interesting. I, I many years ago, I did a, a, a cross country ski tour in in Norway, and we ended up um, near uh, Rukken, where the here is a telemark action on the heavy water plant yeah. took place. And just near this um, sort of mount, this fjellstu, this mountain little mountain hotel, there was um, there were some Norwegian troops who were on an exercise and they were they were bivvying nearby and we went out to to see them and they were traveling very light and one of the things that they were doing for for water and i i it's interesting that you mentioned this because i learned it from them was that they had a small i think it was like a 500 ml plastic bottle with a little um neck harness that they use for producing much of their drinking water doing exactly what you said that they you know they're using the body heat as they ski along to to melt the snow in, that's put in that bottle and keep topping it up and then they can generate a reasonable amount of water while they're moving during the day doing that so that's yeah. uh, that's interesting i was going to say is that something you you picked up in scandinavia or just something you arrived at independently i'm just interested well, where these things come from guess who i learned that from um Morska Hansky. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I spent time in Norway. I, I hiked across the Hardangervida um, and spent time Fins, the mountains north of Fins, and uh, yeah. And um, but I didn't learn it then. Yeah. No, I learned so much. And it's, it's funny that a lot of the, the survival stuff I learned in the military was 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 bullshit, really. Um, and then you come across here and spend time with people like Moors, um, Ross Hinter. My wife, my wife's people here. I spend a lot of time with Blackfoot and, uh, and Stony uh, Indigenous people here as well. And you kind of pick up on the real skills of the land from them. You watch what they do, and you learn so much from them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think are the biggest survival myths that still persist? Because clearly, I guess even military survival training has moved on in you know in the, in the past decades, but. And so it might be a little bit unfair to comment on maybe some things that were being taught, you know, years ago. But in terms of what you see now, in terms of still persisting myths, what would you say are the biggest ones that we need to shoot down? Um, a lot of these these points that I've perhaps mentioned already, and and to your point, yeah, the military has moved on leaps and bounds. I've still got friends in the military, and yeah, I know it's moved on leaps and bounds since my my old days of running around, but um, the water, boiling the water, um, uh, you know, the processes of, of what one should do next in a survival situation. Um, now with, with Morskahansky, I, I, I learned that perhaps you don't need to put up a shelter and you could just build a fire and, and lay down beside it and, and be quite happy because, you know, 45, perhaps more 
percentage of precipitation will be held up in, in the trees above you anyway. So it's not going to fall on you. So just make a fire, lay down, go to sleep you know, with some boughs underneath you, of course. Um, and I did that so often um, when I went out dog sledding. I, I wouldn't bother putting up a shelter. And I, I actually, because we were training the army, I could see them putting up their shelters or sometimes they had tents, spent a lot of time doing it. And I would just roll out my sleeping bag and, and go to sleep. But, um, yeah, food. Food is, is, is the big issue, I believe. And that's what I've addressed in the book um, about what we should eat, when we should eat it. And um, I think that will be an ongoing issue anyway. And, and whether I've got it 100% right, I don't know. But I'm perhaps I'm closer than, than some people who have not observed what I've observed or even tried out what I've tried out myself um, when I've gone out on some trips. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're at least moving the conversation forwards and there there are some tropes and cliches out there which... Oh, um, uh, nice. Mm. <laughs> Nice. People going for, for huge bush knives, um, <laughs> and it's <laughs> one of my pet peeves, I suppose, that really needs addressing. And yeah, and go small. Have a look at what the Scandinavians use, the puko, and just yeah, go small knives, not big knives. Um, yeah, I mean there are some ridiculous knives out there and i'm not talking the sort of zombie knives i'm talking all the fantasy knives i'm just talking about some of the survival knives they're still very much in the the sort of rambo not that jimmy lyle wasn't a good knife maker but there are still there's just like they want it to do everything and again it's it's about real experience isn't it you know i look at some knives or people reviewing knives not that i spend a lot of time looking at that stuff but you can't escape that in our world and um yeah, it's. I, I get. I, I don't even want to go into it. I just get frustrated <laughs> with that obsession with big, ridiculous knives with lots of gadgets on them. Okay. I'm just gonna let these two dogs out. Yeah, there. go for it. Yeah. They're killing each other at my feet. Ah. <coughs> yeah, the knife issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as I say, I kind of get frustrated that. Um, you know, there's this persistence of ridiculously big knives that you can't make anything with. You know, you can chop things with them maybe, but you can't actually make anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll keep chipping away at some of those myths then, Dave. Hey? We'll do our yeah, best. Yeah, so, and I think I've you know, just, you'd probably find more that I've um, burst a bubble on some of these myths in, in, in the book as I go through. Yeah. yeah. Well, I very much look forward to reading it, Dave. Where can people um, keep track of your your book and also maybe make contact with you or follow your adventures or other materials online? Do you have websites, social media? Where's the best place for people to um, connect connect with you? The best place is, is, is our company um, sites, and that's um, mahican.ca. Mm-hmm. So M-A-H-I-K-A-N. .ca. And so um, that kind of tells you what we're doing. Um, we're not very good on keeping it up because both of us, my wife and I, are just so busy running around the country doing everything we do. Um, but uh, we try and try and put out our courses that we're running um, on our own personal Facebook sites. Uh, so Brenda Holder and uh, Dave Holder. Um, 
and I'll, I'll link to all of these on the in the show notes so we'll have a page that's dedicated to this episode of the podcast and the links to Mohican and Facebook and some of the other things that we've talked about as well I'll, I'll make sure they're all there for people to refer to um, we, we have an obscure YouTube channel I think believe called survival crafts um, and, and my wife's done a lot of beading videos on that how to make a buckskin jacket and I've, I've done a little bit of dog hair spinning on that and some, some other crafts as well which once again, we've been so busy running around that we haven't really maintained that one. Yep, I understand. <laughs> I knew it for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's... I don't not... know how you do what you do, Paul. Uh, I'm, I'm quite amazed. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I try, I try and be efficient um, and I try and leverage the things like this podcast that are going to have some impact and deliver value to people. But we've seen the benefit of people single-mindedly focusing on one particular platform you know we've had like joe robinett who you know for example he's very much focused on his youtube channel and grown it massively there's a guy over here called um mike pullen who i come to know quite well who's a good good lad um and he his ta outdoors uh, channel when i first knew him i think he had eighty thousand followers which is quite a lot by most people's standards but very much like joe he's grown that just by single-minded focus and that's all he does is do youtube videos and now again he's got over a million followers so i think the only way you can really make the most of these platforms is focus on one of them to the exclusion of other things but frankly i think most of us who have lots of interests and lots of commitments and different work streams we just can't do that so no I, exactly i mean till ta outdoors i was watching that last night i i, I love that um <laughs> And Joe Robinette, he well, he was on the first boot camp because he was on the first alone show. And uh, uh, what a knowledgeable guy he is! Well, we had a, a lot of fun chatting on that first boot camp there. And of course, he, he sadly had that, that that mistake error on the on the on the alone show when he lost his ferro rod. But mm. uh, just incredible guy. Um, yeah. So it's, it's nice to see him move forward in that area. Yeah, and I think that's that's a good lesson that you know because people still critique him for that and i talked to him in reasonable depth about that when when joe was on this podcast quite a, a while ago and we we had quite a frank and sort of a candid discussion about that whole episode with the ferro rod and and ha- what it did to his psychology but i think again it's you know you can either let that ruin your career can't you in some ways and, and just listen to the negative people or you can say well it was a mistake i learned from it let's move on and that, that's what you have to do um both in the in the micro in these situations but also in your life in general we all do things that don't work out and it's, the question is what you do next yeah it's a learning point move yeah. on take it learn from it yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely well dave this has been fascinating i know we've kind of maybe lurched from one thing to another and back again at at times but hopefully that was a reasonably coherent conversation for for people to follow the thread through and we very much look forward to reading your book and the insights it brings and maybe some of the questions you ask that are not yet fully answered and moving the conversation forwards and thank you for that and we look forward to it and thank you for taking the time today um it's no mean feat to get two hours out of your out of your day so i really appreciate you being here and and joining me on the podcast thank you 
It's great. I'm, I'm glad we could eventually get this together, Paul. It was a long time ago. We, we did talk about it at the Global Bushcraft. So, uh, so yeah, excellent. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, thanks again to Dave for his time and for sharing his experience with us. I hope you found it interesting and insightful as well as enjoyable to listen to. All the relevant links to people and books mentioned in this podcast are included in the show notes on the page dedicated to this podcast, which you can go straight to at paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 54. That's forward slash podcast 54. While you're there on my site at paulkirtley.co.uk as well, if you're not already subscribed to my email updates, then please join. It's free. There's no downside. You'll then be among the first to know about not only new podcasts, but also all the free articles and videos that I put onto the site, as well as other less public online materials. There's a sign-up form on pretty much every page on the website. Also, links to all the other podcasts, etc., if you've missed them in the past, including ones at the bottom of the show notes for this episode. So relevant links I'll add there as well. So you might want to jump into conversation with Joe Robiner, or you might want to jump into conversation with Morska Hansky, etc. I'll link to those most relevant previous episodes below there as well. And finally, a short reminder that the production of these podcasts is supported financially by the online course side of my business, Frontier Bushcraft, and otherwise kept completely advertising free. If you'd like to check out my online course offerings, then please do so at onlinebushcraftcourses.com. That's onlinebushcraftcourses.com. Thanks for listening. I look forward to bringing you the next podcast in this series before too long. And in the meantime, have fun outdoors. Take care.